Zane Lowe has been described as the world's best radio DJ and is known for his adrenaline-filled musical passion. His extensive knowledge and genuine love of music has enabled Zane to secure interviews with the biggest names in the industry. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to just don't even need is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I could not. That was the turning point. Hi, I'm Phil Cogan. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast, where I talk to mavericks, innovators, and disruptors. People who take chances. Those who swerve off the predictable road, face their fears, and refuse to say no. Amazingly resilient people who are motivated and tenacious. Those who have said bucket and who epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. Arguably the most influential and respected radio host on the planet has finally secured a much-anticipated interview with Kanye West. The interview is going as planned until Kanye looks straight down the barrel of the camera and for the next hour gives a raw and emotional monologue. It's a game-changer for Zane Lowe. So how did a relatively unknown rapper and local TV host from New Zealand go on to win Music Broadcaster of the Year three times in the UK and then become the creative director and on-air host at Apple's Beats One in Los Angeles? His incredible success story is one of tenacity, perseverance, and eternal optimism. I'd be like, it's probably time to I'll hang like, up now because I'm yeah. a third degree... I caught up with Zane in the Beats One studio in Los Angeles. Sweet. Thanks for having us in your space. We've completely taken over. That's a pleasure. We just put our cameras in here and took over your space. Your, Whatever you want. You already home. know. You already know. I mean, you already know when you ask to do this, you already know how I feel about it. So... yeah. Glad to be here. Oh, Not tell only, us about the Kanye interview. Which one? Well, the one where he got quite emotional and... Right, and, the, so the one. Yes, the one. For me, at least. Yes. Right. Um, well, I, you know, I, we tried to interview him for some time and he'd been kind of off the, off the radar. He hadn't done any press, at least. I think for about three years, maybe. Um, he'd gone sort of radio silence. And we sort of had tried a few times to talk to Kanye and it had been tentatively booked and then cancelled, tentatively booked and then cancelled. So we knew what we were getting ourselves into and this thing got booked and we were like, it's not going to happen. And then right up to on the day, it's not going to happen. And the next thing you know, I'm down in the studio. It's not going to happen. And then I'm sitting in the chair with my questions. It's still not going to happen. And then he walks past on his own, like, like this, like the glass, and just walks in. He's like, hey, what's up? On his own, sits down, and we just started. For the first eight minutes, it went exactly as I wanted it to. I just... Deep discussion about music, the album beats, music, all the things that I thought that I wanted to get out of the interview. And then he just pivoted to the camera and uh, just gave the most amazing dialogue, you know. And I remember at the time having to concentrate really hard initially to work out what my role in it was and having to just go, just shut up. Yeah. To me, like to myself, just shut up. Don't say anything. Don't interject. Don't interject, don't interrupt, don't interject. And just really consciously saying to myself, like, don't say anything. Because it's, it's that, you know, we're conversationalists. I mean, this, this has been pretty, like, this is a bit of game, game of table tennis going on here. You know, that's how we like to have conversations, right? It's a little bit of, like, it's a connection. But there is a moment when you're interviewing people where sometimes Shut you up. just have to notice. And I, I'd never been that good at that. And I remember thinking, if you're ever going to learn that lesson, today's the day you should learn that lesson. I shut up, I let it happen, I interjected a few times. It became a sort of running joke amongst people online that, you know, 
the best interview of his career and he only asked four <laughs> questions. <laughs> he only asked four questions. As, but as soon as he stopped talking, it got really interesting. But it was exactly. <laughs> which is I'm totally fine with, by the yeah. way. Um, henceforth, check your ego at the door. But yeah. um, and I remember it, it went off like 90 minutes and then we finished and he was so happy. He left. I woke up the next morning. I said to my producer, who's again, came with me, works here at Apple, James. I said to him, I'm not sure, man. I don't even know. I don't even know what we have. I don't even know. Maybe we shouldn't. And uh, I checked myself and he said, uh, nah, you need to put the headphones on and have a listen to this. And what you need to do is just listen to the whole thing from start. And when you hear something that you're not comfortable with, press stop, make a note. And he came back after like 15 minutes. He said, how are we getting on? I said, I went, we're good. <laughs> and that was it. Put the whole thing out. Because I recognized straight away and with some perspective, um, just how amazing he was in that moment. And you how, just let it go. Oh, dude. I mean, it was for me, what I loved about it was it was just like pure ambition, pure goal, pure manifestation, pure frustration, all the things that, you know, we're so used to seeing our artists bury for the sake of creating a veneer, an approachable veneer in order to quote unquote promote something. He just was like, I'm not promoting anything right now except myself. And I'm going to do it from the most heartfelt place possible. And it was amazing. And to this day, people still quote that interview to me. And I'm just proud I had a, a small role to play in it. Four questions, man. See, your whole life, your whole career built up to that moment where you made that decision. Shut, shut the shut up. fuck up. And I'm really glad I did. And to be honest with you, uh, and this is part of life, right? When you learn a lesson and it's a good one, you stick with it. And so I, I really try to do that now. I try to like listen a lot more than I ever used to. And um, I mean, I'm not putting too fine a you know, point on it when I say that interviews kind of changed my life. And, and actually, to some degree, I mean, really, it was like Jay-Z, Kanye, Eminem within six months. That just sort of changed everything. That's a lineup. Yeah, it was amazing. And it sort of opened the door, I think, to some to some degree to to America in terms of like, all right, well, whether we like this guy or not, he seems to be able to get inside the room with these artists. So let's see what he's got to offer. You're famous now all over the world. People listen to you all over the world, millions of people. But for those people who don't know who mm. Zane Lowe is with mm. the New Zealand accent, <laughs> uh, how do you describe yourself? Music fan. Yeah. Straight up. Music fan from day one. Obsessed with it. Love it. Um, attached itself to every part of my life, didn't want that experience to end and have just been searching for new and exciting ways to remain that and um, make that my life. You're living your dream right now, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I am. And, and you know, it's um, it's been like that for a long time and I'm super grateful for it. I, I just really love music and, I, and I've seen it change so much throughout my life. I was buying vinyl when I was, you know, started listening to it and just to watch the distribution shift three or four times in my lifetime has been fascinating and to see more than any other entertainment or any other form of entertainment, the kind of transformation music has gone through. More mm. than TV, more than film, more than art. Um, you know, the way that people consume it and move it. I'm proud of music, you know. I'm proud of how it continually searches for new ways to reach its audience. It makes it tough. It makes it tough on the artist. It makes it tough on the fans sometimes to know how to find each other. But I'm proud that it doesn't, doesn't stop evolving. And, and it's really evolving right now. Who have you had in here? Gaga's been in here. Nicki Minaj has been in here. Miley Cyrus has been in here. And I'm trying to think who else. I mean, outside of the studio, we've had a really good run. Uh, still to this day, the only interview with The Weeknd, really, on video and on the record. Drake, Kendrick. It's been good, man. How do you describe Beats 1? It's a live stream. If you think of streaming right now, if you're interested in streaming or you're streaming, you know, you go to your device, you go to your phone, you go to your HomePod, you, whatever, you, however you're streaming, and, you know, you ask for something, you search for something. Maybe you go to browse and you look through it like you would iTunes or a record store. Yeah. Um, we're a live stream. You know, we're there to, uh, to insert our DNA into that whole experience. Um, we started out as a radio station. We moved quickly away from that, realizing we couldn't really reach 100 countries in a colloquial way. Radio is very much the heartbeat, as you know, is the heartbeat of a local town or a country. It speaks the language of the people who are most open to it. 
um, traffic, weather, news, gossip. What's sport, happening whatever. down the road. Yeah, yeah. totally. It's got like, to be. It has that immediacy. It has to. Yeah. It has to. And when, when you put in front of 100 countries and you're told you're on a phone at all times and you have to make a seismic shift in the way people actually consume you. Yeah. People have, uh, radio has become very traditional for people. And I mean that as a compliment to radio. I, having lived in it for a long time, I know the power of it. You get in your car, you listen to it. It has a real routine to people's lives. Uh, what we noticed was, and what I noticed was very quickly, was routine was going out the window. Schedules didn't really exist. And people wanted what they wanted when they wanted it, certainly when it came to music. So we had to build something that wasn't really stuck to a schedule, wasn't really stuck to one town or country, and had to be very malleable within streaming as a concept. And streaming is fast, fluid, all the time. Records are coming at you all the time. People are streaming records right now. The accumulation of streams is happening right now all the time. And a lot of people think of you as a really great filter for like getting through all of that clutter. Right, right. Because there's just so much stuff out there. Yeah, there's a lot of music. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by what's out there? Like maybe you're missing out on something because it's coming at you left, right, and center from so many different... Sources? It's a good question. And I'll tell you what, what's funny is that it, it may not be the answer you're expecting. I, I actually felt more overwhelmed w when I wasn't in streaming. Huh. I felt more overwhelmed. When people were sending demos. Yeah, and yeah I felt more overwhelmed when I, when I had two hours a night to play this music. And I thought, like, you've got to get it all in. And, oh, I missed that. And I missed that. Da, da, da. I'm so into streaming. Like, yeah. even just as a fan, I'm in. Like, I love it. And so I use it all the time. For you as a listener, how are you listening? Are you listening on your phone, in the car, everything? Yeah, all of that. HomePod phone, in the car, you know, on my laptop, headphones, however I can get it. In the it, shower, do you have like a little... Yeah, I have speakers in my bathroom. I have speakers all over my house, man. And, and you know, for me, it, it's really awoken that insatiable appetite for music that I had when I was a kid that became more structured as I started to become more successful within the music business, mm. I, I would have to structure how I listened to music and how I approached it almost like it was part of my day. And now I get in my car and I just, with my kids, and I don't structure anything. I just search or I go to browse. And rather than think, do I want to listen to that? I go, why wouldn't I want to listen to that? And I just press play on have it. Have your kids ever like zeroed in on something and said, hey, dad, you got to listen to this? Yeah. All the time. Really? All the time. I like, mean, that, that's been one of the best moments of my life is finding them, is finding them find themselves and not rely on my taste or their mum's taste and start to listen to their friends and influence each other. Like sometimes I'll play them something and they'll be like, Psh, you're late. You know, oh, and really? Oh, God, yeah. Because you got to think about it. They're with their friends all day, every day. And they're always finding ways to try and impress and get, get each other excited, right? right? So there's always a trading of music or fashion or ideas. And they're at a point now where... Content, look, it's not even about music. It's not even about video. It's not even about podcasts. It's not even about art or fashion. It's all one thing. It's all, it's all great or it's not. And if it's great, do you know about it? Have you heard this? Have you checked this out? Check out Word this viral mouth, moment. Just, it's incredible. And right now, dude, it, it goes to, from the mouth to the phone and the yes. phone to the world. Let's go back to your, your beginnings because you said you love music, you live music, you breathe music. It's what you're doing now in your mm -hmm. life. But let's go back to you in Auckland, New Zealand mm -hmm. as a kid. I was, just a, I was just a normal kid. I was just, I was into sports. I was trying my best to be competitive. I wasn't as good as other people, but I held my own. Captain Second Eleven, and I was watching you on you. television, and I was, you know, listening to music. And those were kind of the only things I was sort of doing, really. Yeah. It was, you know, spending a little bit of time catching up, and you and some of your peers were instrumental in that. And I was lucky because music was my passion. So I just fell into that. And then just tell us about how you started playing music, making music. I just wanted to get close to it. 
and I just wanted to be as close to the Did process as possible. Did you get goosebumps when you listen to music? I got was goosebumps it? this morning listening to music. Yeah. You know, I was driving my kids to school and my son chose a Jose Gonzalez record and I was like, does it every time? Yeah. At exactly the same moment, you know? And so I, I felt that emotion. I felt connected to it. I felt like it was speaking to me and helping me through tough times. I felt like when my parents were going through divorce that it was a thing that allowed me to, it distracted me and it filled me with something that, was missing at that moment you know i felt like uh, uh um i f didn't feel alone mm. and i realized very early on the power of music and 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 the effect it could have on people. the international language absolutely absolutely and one that moves with you throughout your life and changes shape according to what you're going through albums they yeah. don't just book in one moment in your life i mean siamese dream has been with me my whole life and it's been there through heartache and it's been through being there through love and challenge and triumph and those songs can change shape I'm interested to to know what you were listening to as a as a teenager, mm. the the influences that you had. Like, do you remember one specific album that really spoke to you that made you go, "Wow, this is what I want to do"? I can remember so many. I mean, that was I Beastie mean, Boys. Do you remember? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, first of all, you're so open. Your ears are so open at that point in your life because you're searching for identity, right? You're searching for a way to um, present yourself to the world and to your friends. And so you really start to develop independent thought, independent taste in a big, big way. Mm. Um, so that was a supremely influential time in my life and kind of put me on this path to now, really. Um, and so, I mean, I remember the first time I met Rick Rubin, you know, who started Def Jam and um, co-started, co-founded Def Jam and ended up and produced a lot of the most, has produced a lot of the most amazing records of all time. And, um, and I know Rick now pretty well. And uh, but the first time I met him, I remember saying to him, like, you know, you sort of were ground zero. For, like you were, you were day one for me. You're a day oneer. Like the the first day I'd made a decision to not necessarily just be influenced by my brother's record collection, which was infinite and brilliant. Your older brother? Yeah. Which was like amazing, like the Smiths and the Cure and like great records. But you, you give him credit for kind of introducing absolutely. me to the world of music? I don't know if I can give him credit. I just took it. You took it. Okay, I mean, he just, you know, he just. Did you sneak into his room and grab his yeah, records? Yeah, dude. I, dude, I mean, I Did gave, he come to you and say, Zane, you stop. left the records out yes. of the. Yeah. Yes, I've always been better at that. And dude, I gave him the Smiths, the Queen is Dead as a present for his birthday. So you for could listen. me. Got it. So selfish. Dude, he called me on it. He's like. Yeah. Really? You know, I'm not really in a Smiths phase right now. And yeah. I'm like. But I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the day that I just decided that I was going to kind of move in my own way was when I first saw this kind of this, I've told the story, but you know, I saw this like after school news special. I don't know if it was, I think it was Video Dispatch. I don't think you did spot on, right? I did spot on. Then I did 345 Live. Maybe it was, it was maybe it was 345 Live. It yeah. might've been 345 Live. And so maybe new. And well, I, and for I, those people who don't know, 345 Live was this daily live show that started at 345 and it was live, and anybody who came to town. I mean, it's a great. Can I swear on this? It's a great fucking name. I mean, three forty-five live. Three forty-five live. It just sounds so good. Yeah. Three forty-five live. Do yeah. you know? I mean, you know how hard names are. You called your show the Amazing Race. I mean, yeah. it's like it's like <laughs> what does it say? What does it say on the tin? The Amazing Race. Call it that, right? Yeah. But coming up with names that are catchy is yeah. hard. Three forty-five live is so good. Three forty-five live. But it, they did it like this. Three forty-five. I remember, yeah. bro. Remember that with the graphic and the whole thing? Yeah, of course. But um, anyway, so I saw this video. I saw this thing on After School. It might have been Video Dispatch. I think it might have been prior. It, it might have been pre three forty five live, and uh, I, I thought that's me. And then I just went deep into Rick Rubin, 
and his world and all the records he was making on all the artists he was collaborating and how with. You, how were you getting information about what he was doing? That Magazines was hard. Or how that was, was hard. I mean, you I, just didn't go Google no, in those No, no, no. So NME would, they were starting to dabble in it. So, you know, and we got the NME like six weeks after it came out because it had to be like freighted over by boat. Do you remember so, this, how special it was in New Zealand to go to the record store and, and get an import? Oh, and and you mean, were like- you got the import, yeah. you know, you got the... And then you get home and realize it was a bootleg. It'd be heartbroken because yeah. half the side two was just like shit. It yeah. sounded awful. And it'd been dubbed off in China <laughs> or something. <laughs> You'd just be like, what is this? Uh, so yeah, I'd get into me. I'd read it. I'd, I'd, I would cut out any article that related to rap music. Like Mantronics live at the, the, the Kentish Town Forum or whatever. You know, Public Enemy, Def Jam Tour, whatever review, little album reviews or anything that was in print, I would make scrapbooks. So I just had the rap articles. And I would just make scrap, scrapbook after scrapbook after scrapbook after scrapbook. And then I would go and hunt the records down and I'd go into 256 Records or Real Groovy, wherever I could, and go see a couple of people, some of whom are still friends of mine, one of which is one of my best friends still, and I'm godfather to, to, to one of his, to his son, I call Kirk Harding, who's still in the record business today and working with amazing artists, manages The Neighborhood, who are a big band. I would go to him behind the counter with his perm and say, where's the rap? And he'd go, there's probably one new album, maybe, under Blues and Soul. It's in the back corner. Yeah. And I'd go and I'd buy it. And, I, and I, I, I honestly can say that at one point I had every rap record that was released in Auckland because there was only nine of them and I owned them. And then the floodgates opened and they started coming in, started coming in. And then I could pick and choose and I could choose what I liked and what I didn't like because some of it didn't, wasn't to my taste. And that's when it landed. So when did you get on TV? When did you become a voice in music? How old were you at that point? Because the thing about 345 live and being stuck away in New Zealand was anybody who was anybody who came to New Zealand. You got him. You got him. You got him. I, I, I mean, I'm it was trying the to greatest training ground of all time. Yeah. Skid Row, yeah. MC Hammer. I remember. Uh, UB40. I remember going out on it for a great night on the town with UB40. <laughs> blowing my mind. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, all of a sudden they were there, but they didn't necessarily want to be there. It was sort of part of their obligation oh, while they were in so, New Zealand. This is so you true. Know, it's like, Back then, it would be like, you're going to go to New Zealand? Like, when? I don't know. Tack it on at the end. Yeah. And so you'd get these these tours that would come at the end. And, and they were exhausted. Exhausted. And all they want to do is go to Carry Carry and smoke weed. Yeah. And right? go surfing at Ragland Go to Piha, smoke weed, hang yeah. out. They didn't want to do anything. But of course, God bless those early people in the New Zealand music business. The yeah. few people that were running promo that would say, you got to go through Max TV or you got to go through so 345 that's where Live. You were. You, were, you were at Max TV, which, which came after I'd left. I'd gone overseas by the time. I remember. I'm sorry I missed you. <laughs> I'm sorry you point. left. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so, so you end up on Max TV. How old were you at that point? Probably 19, 20. Yeah, yeah, near 19 maybe. And, and tell us about the show. So, I mean, well, first of all, I was, just, I was working in a bar, blah, blah, blah. And, and then um, it's actually um, Daniel and Katie Wrightson. Yep. And um, their parents, Dale mm-hmm. um, and Gillian, they they were putting together Max TV and they had the idea of like, well, does Zane want to come and do some work? Because we need some people to play videos and we're just getting started and we'll see where it lands and we'll see what opportunity we, that we or he can create for himself. But it's a, it seems like a good opportunity. And I was super grateful because I was pretty lost at that time. Um, and in terms of like what I was going to do with my life, um, and was making beats, producing records, but it, the penny kind of dropped that maybe I wasn't going to be able to live off making beats in my mum's house, you know? So I was so grateful for the opportunity. I jumped at it. And so I was right there sort of at the beginning of Max. And What put, were you doing? I mean, literally putting in beta, beta tapes and pressing play and making sure that we didn't go to dead air. For people who don't know what... Well, Beta okay, tapes. so so we, they're basically just analog so we had a bunch tapes. of monitors. So we, so these things weren't automated at that point. You know, yeah. you'd have someone would have to put the tape in and press play. Yeah, that was you. And then when that video would end, you know, in twenty seconds, you'd have to have the other one ready to go, and then there would be a transition, 
machine that would create a fade and you'd press play on the other one and make sure you'd press a, an ad, make sure the ads got played and just make sure there was no dead air. So I was doing that and then um, after a certain period of time, I just sort of said, look, you know, there's a show without a host. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm into hip hop and stuff. I know it's just dance, but whatever, we can like make it work. And so I started presenting that and then that led to a show and then Bish Bosh Bash did a bunch of things at Max in terms of on air and things like that and learned a ton and as you pointed out, you know, interviewed a ton of people. I mean, crazy. Amazing. Come on, Zane. I mean, for you, Katie as, Lang, a, as a young Brooks, kid, Meatloaf. I mean, Chris Cornell, rest his soul. Billy Corgan, the Beastie Boys. I want to know what happened when you interviewed the Beastie Boys because terrible. That was a big life les lesson for you. you it said. was a big life lesson for me because I had prepared for days to do it. It was sort of my absolute moment. Like this is the peak of the mountain for me right mm. now in my life, and they were and remain to this day the most influential artistic group of my life. Um, they influenced me in ways that go beyond music, you know. Um, I would read everything that they said. I would look at everything that they told me to look at. I would buy anything that, or try to that they thought was cool. I even almost thought golf was cool at one point because they were into it. So, you know, and now I've realized in old age that golf is very cool. Just very hard to play. Very hard to play. <laughs> I don't play it, but it's very cool. It's but, but as a kid, I was like, golf? Man, Beastie Boys are really pushing it this time, but I'll have a crack at this, right? So that, that's the level, the degree of dedication that I had for the band. And then I had an opportunity to interview them. They're coming in on, on, the, on the Ill Communication Tour. And, um, and I thought I was prepared. And uh, the lesson I learned was you can totally over-prepare. You know, you can't control the situation. You can't control your subject. And you've got to be really malleable and, and willing to be able to move with them in whatever mood they're in. I had a pretty good run-up until then. And uh, they just weren't into it. Yeah. They weren't into what I considered to you be. You had an agenda. And they weren't into it. Right. They were not into it. They just were into their own thing. And, you know, I, I look back on it now. What, what did I expect? I mean, what we loved about the Beasties was that they were the gang we all wanted to be in. They were the club we all wanted to be in. Mm. And I thought that if I asked the right questions, I might get temporary entry. And it was just no way. Do you like, feel like maybe you were trying to prove to them that you were a big fan course, and that you were you knew course. everything? I mean, that is like one of the biggest traps for young players in, in the interview game. Yeah. Is you go in there thinking I'm going to wow you with science, you know? And they're like, "Why are you telling us our history? We already know it." Yeah. We, uh, what are you trying to get in my head now? You already, well, no, because you already you tell me <clears> things I already know. I was there. Like, yeah. you'd like I get it that you have read the book or you read the article or you listened to the album. That's awesome. Give me something new. And I didn't have anything, and I was so devastated. And uh, and I did it. Did it take the steam out of you to a point where you thought, "Man, this is not the business for me"? Or did, did no, you just sort of want to dig I, in? It was worse than that to some degree. I, t I asked my boss at the time to not play it, and he agreed because I was really serious. So it never upset. went to air. Never went to air. But I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. You. It's not about me. It's right. about them. People aren't tuning in to see me win. Mm. They're tuning in to see the Beastie Boys, and I have to be a conduit for that. And if they decide that I'm going to be the one that they – and it was always lovingly yeah. – mock or have fun with or play with, that's what they are. Yeah. You know, if I talked to them afterwards and said, why were you like that? They would have gone like, why? This is what we do. Yeah. They weren't doing anything that wasn't natural to them as a group. And anything that I didn't love about them as a group, it's just I was on the receiving end, and I thought for a minute that they were going to appreciate me. And they did, but just in their own way. And as I got older, I learned to move with the Beastie Boys at their own pace. And now Mike Dees, I mean, I can honestly say Mike is, is a friend of mine. And I'm blows my mind to even say that. But it's also the power of like, you know, when you think it and you put it out there, 
you bring it to yourself, right? Maybe, maybe that was meant to happen, you know? Maybe I have <clears> no doubt. Maybe that was part of your journey. I have no doubt because we're talking about it. And if mm. we're talking about it, then it's stuck. And it's a lesson that's stuck. And it's something that I don't mind telling because I feel like if you're in a situation where you want to be curious and you want to be part of a conversation, then you must, to the best of your de- of your ability, check your ego at the door because you are a vessel of information. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen that quote from you where you said you're a conduit between the artist and the fan. 100%. And, there and, was no conversation that I can lead that if it's not of value to the artist or the fan, then I should be having it privately. Right. I like being uncomfortable enough. Mm. I like to get to a situation where it's uncomfortable enough, mm. but I am, I always come from a place and I get a little bit of slack for this, but I always come from a place of empathy for the artist because I am, as you asked at the very beginning and remain a fan. Yeah. And I can't not be that. If I'm not fan entirely, I start to become a critic mm. and critics can be fans, but they've also got to be critics. And I've never been very good at being a critic. I think, you know, one of the things I respect about you, just having read up about you and followed you over the years, is is that you have blazed your own trail. I don't feel like you've tried to follow anybody. Or I tried you, to follow you. Are you fucking kidding me? No. I called you <laughs> yeah. when you were on the phone speaking, and you were you were on. The, you, I will never forget it. You were like, "Hey, what's up?" So you had a much worse American accent back then, Did by I the really? way. Yeah, because you know you were trying to fit in. That's what happens when you're young. Anyway, so. <laughs> So I remember you saying, listen, I'm on the freeway and the traffic is terrible. I was so- at a dragway, a drag, a, what do you call a, a, a drag strip? Right. And there was, there were drag racing cars. Yeah. Cause you said it's off. very loud. And I, I, yeah. I remember you calling me and I remember your accent and I remember your enthusiasm. I could yeah. hear it down the phone yeah. and it was incredibly difficult to yeah. talk because of these high Because yeah, you were yelling cars. and I was like, it was really sweet because you were giving me all this great advice, but in a really yelling form, really? which is really funny. If you've ever had advice from someone yelling at you, but it's really heartfelt, <laughs> it, it must sort of have cancels each deep. other out. It must have right? gone deep. So into it, it was kind of like, listen, mate, you're going to be just fine. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Just get on a plane and follow your heart okay and i was like oh it's kind of aggressive but i understand why circumstances prevail you know it's pretty funny but so i remember met that, a, cool. i met the i met the drag strip i, I just come off being live on air i was on a show called uh breakfast time no mm-hmm. fox after breakfast mm-hmm. and uh and i i remember sweating because it was really hot I, th- I was down south somewhere and and, and uh and, and I remember being frustrated by the noise but wanting to talk to yeah. you. Yeah, because the air frustration was coming out, catch, but in a really up. loving way. Yeah, and, and and you were talking about coming to America and, and I said to you, mate, don't come to America because you, unless you have a job. Yeah, that's what go you said. to England, conquer England, and one day come to America. That's the truth. Word for word. Yeah. Word for word. And I, I was, was in two minds, because and I don't mind saying this now, because a lot of people have tried it. I was going to come and see if I could make it from the inside out. Yeah. So I was going to try and come man. here, connect with people, get sponsored and do all that in America. And I was this close because because I was, you know, I was in New York, man. I was ready to go. I was I was, I was just stick it out. Yeah. And you were like, no, you've got a ticket. Take it to London, regroup, work it out from there and make your way back. I'll never forget it. And it was the best bit of advice. And even though other people will say they gave me that advice, that was the only time that advice was actually really true, like rang true, because I was taking it from somebody who was in America. And, and who had lived it. Because yeah. in 1992, my my wife, then girlfriend and I, we arrived in New York with no jobs. Yeah. And we tried to do it from the inside out. So yeah. I had lived it for a year. Yeah. I got offered a job at MTV after being in New York for two weeks. I couldn't take it because I didn't have a visa. Mm. And so when you were talking to me about your plans, I was like, I, I cannot there. let you go through that. Yeah. But if you go to England, yeah. you can work there. Yeah. You get that experience and you bring all that piss and vinegar 
back to America one day. See? And wise words from a good man. Well, you know. True that. I mean, dude, I, you lived it. I, 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 what I love too about your story is you. you sp- I'm so glad that we both remember that calls vividly. Oh, an hour and fifteen minutes. I remember I spoke to you. Yeah, yeah. it was amazing. Because I remember thinking, "Good God, this what's this going to cost?" But were you in? You want to write you a check after this? Listen, do, do I have to, to repeat myself? <laughs> this is costing like, me a fortune. You got to be fine. Okay? Get it through your thick skull. Go to England. Try it there, and then make your way back. <laughs> right, mate. You got it. Yeah, no, I remember. It was like an hour and 15 minutes. I was drenched in sweat by yeah. the time I'd spoken. Guy keeps talking about the duration of the coin. He wants me to cut him a fucking check afterwards. So, Jesus so, Christ. Yeah, You've done no, all right, Phil. You know you what I mean? You can afford it now. You're on season I, 45 of The Amazing it, Race. It was those old analog phones back then, those big bricks. Yeah. Yeah. Attached to and, a briefcase. Your, yeah, ear, my ear was getting hot. I remember. Yeah. Remember those old cell phones would yeah. cook your ear? Yeah, I do. God knows what I, it did to just, us. Do you remember those things? I do. I feel like it's probably time to I'll hang like, up now because I've yeah. got third degree burns on no, my right I, hand. I even remember doing this. I feel a heat and then I would be like, oh God, that's starting to cook. I better go over to the other side and cook that so it's I'm evenly Okay, cooked. Phil, uh, let's go to uh, page 36.6.9. It's like, do we really have to, bro? Yeah. No, it was, well, anyway. Um, no, but I, I love you. You spoke about your brother, but I, but I also love... Uh, what your dad did because your dad mm. was also a bit of a maverick like you I mean th- th- there was a movie that was called more of um, a more Pirate than, uh, Radio right yeah well he he was but that he, was about the English one yeah so so, so there was a, there was a, the, the boat that rocked or whatever it was which was about Caroline yes Caroline happened and Haraki happened sort of simultaneously in the 60s yeah so Haraki was really inspired by Caroline very quickly like yes. immediately they went out into the ocean yep. they launched a boat out in the Haraki Gulf in international waters and they broadcast for several years um and they stuck it out and they won. And when they came back into shore and they'd been through great tr- challenge and, I mean, you know, shipwreck and, you know, they'd been boarded by the cop, by the police and, you know, try to get shut down numerous times. And, and in the end, um, my brother's godfather, Rick Grant, felt, he passed away. He fell overboard. Um, it was a tragic accident, um, just choppy seas and, you know, and... They came into shore and they'd won. And that was the birth of commercial radio in New Can Zealand. Can you give us the backstory? Like, why did they head out to sea? Because they weren't getting, because they, they wanted music that they liked. They wanted radio to reflect who they were. It was a revolution. The youth were starting to have a real sense of independent thought. And again, <clears throat> that taste was coming through and they just weren't getting represented. They went out, they petitioned and said, look, can we please start this. And it was like, no, we've, we've got control over the airwaves and that's how it is and that's the way it should be. And they were like, we disagree. And so they went and they, and they, they did it. I mean, that's the thing. You have every right to stand up for what you believe in and to fight for what you believe in and you do everything you can to get a result and to change things. Did that change you? And seeing, they changed things. Knowing that, that, that your dad went through that, did that, has that Giving you some, I think as I've gotten older and I've gotten into an area of life where our, to some degree, we're in the same, we're on the same road now Mm. because we're both adults. Mm. And when you're a kid, of course, I was proud. I knew about it. People talked to me about it, but I, I just, you're so self-absorbed when you're a kid, you know. And I think now that I'm at a point in my 40s, my dad's in his 70s, we drive the same freeway, you know, in life now which is we're both parents and we both have, you know, we've come together as generations do. Um, I, I just look at what my dad and his friends did and what my mum did in supporting him and helping him to realize that dream because she was right there on the front lines when the drawbridge was going up, man, and people were holding on to it and they were trying to launch that boat. My mum was right there when my dad 
and he's getting arrested right there. And so I think about that and I think about what they went through. Like I said, the challenge and the triumph, but I also think about the result. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. That's what matters. Well, the protest matters. It's doing it. Doing your best matters. But how often do you actually change history? Mm -hmm. How often do you change the way the government thinks? And all of commercial radio now in New Zealand, and subsequently the way that that influences, that is not that doesn't just exist within boundaries. That kind of energy shift, that 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 achievement, that resonates globally. That's a real thing. You know what I mean? It's and it's and it's huge. And I couldn't be more proud well, of my parents for I, I being a part of that. I think he must be proud of you. I mean, just he is, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, both of us, me and my brother. What you've what you've achieved. Let's go back to when I was yelling at you um, and told you to go to England, uh, <laughs> and 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 you and you turn up in England and 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 then. How did you make that shift? You, you, you've less, first of all, why did you leave New Zealand? Why, why was it right, important right. for you to leave New Zealand? Right. Well, why did you feel like you had to get out? Well, I mean, I, was, I had a great job. I was working at Max TV. I felt very fortunate. I was interviewing great artists, and it was brilliant. But um, why does anybody? Why do you get that sense and that, that just that sense that there's more? But not more? everybody does, Zane. I mean, like, I, I did it. I, I mean, there, there were a few, but there were a lot of people that are just right. comfortable to sit back. Do you know what the match was? I saw a, it all comes from these kind of a, these right place, right time situations where I'm exposed to something and it just plants an inception, an idea in my head. Yeah. I was watching a New Zealand version of 60 Minutes and it was telling a story about Brent Hansen. Okay. And how Brent Hansen had moved from running radio with pictures and yes. working in TV and Z or whatever and he'd moved out to the UK and found himself running MTV Europe. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, a Kiwi. Which he did for like 18 years oh, or something. I mean, and, has, and became not only a mentor and a guide, but a very good friend. Yeah. Um, did you meet up with him when you went to England? Did you have a connection? Yeah, so crazy. So this is a crazy story. So I see this thing. I'm blown away. I'm like, wow, this guy just hasn't changed. He's still got the long hair. He's just yeah. moping around like, what's up? Typical Kiwi. Such relaxed. a hippie, right? I love him. And so, but he's running this massive company. And I'm like, this is like, a, he's a real inspiring story. So. I did a show reel. My thing was like, okay, my thing was like, I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going to go. I saw your show reel. Yeah, it was like 40 minutes long. 22. It was, it was so long. 22. So long. A little long. It was so yeah. long. It was like an 18 page so resume. A, one, a one, like, one hour, 15 minute call and 22 minutes of show reel. I was indulgent back yeah, then. And the right? letter. So, yeah. You'll be happy to know I'm far more refined now. Yeah. Anyway, so um, I did this show reel. I'm like, I'm going to get on a plane. I'm just going to go. I'm going to hunt this guy down. I'm going to search for this guy. I'm going to find I'm going to put this show reel in his oh, hand. Oh, I, right? I could tell you were going to do that. I when was going to do it. I'm going to go find this guy. Before I even get to chance to do that, I make this show reel. It ends up in a few hands. I sent it to Brent Hansen. I mailed it to him. Didn't know him. Kira Brent Hansen, MTV Europe, send it off. Boom. Gave it to a few other people. Roger Shepard, founder of Flying Nun Records, is the man who put it in Brent's hand, I believe. Brent reaches me, goes, hey, super short email writer, like ridiculous. Like, like it's a real skill. Like, hi, Roger showed me your reel. Great. Dad. I remember he signed it dad. I was like, dad. Oh, all right, interesting. I didn't even ever ask him what that meant. It may be an acronym he or something. He wanted to be your big daddy. No, I just think that he was like, it was an acronym or something. But I remember it. I remember thinking, fuck, what does that mean? Like, do I just get on a plane tomorrow? Like, what do I do? And then I, so I went back to him and I just, and I did that classic thing of dancing around your influence, dancing around your inspiration and seeing yeah. if you can make a connection. And, and I pushed him and pushed him and prodded him as much as I possibly could. And eventually he said, look, if you're going to come out here, make a go of it. Look me up. And that's yeah. all he said. And I looked him up and that's what started the ball rolling. And, and Brent will never admit to kind of opening the door for me because he's too humble, but I'm pretty confident he did. And, and I just, from there, I just wanted to make him proud. I just wanted to go and do the best work I can because, you know, um, for someone like that to have one of his own kind of country folk working in a position with him, you don't want to be 
You don't want to let them down. No. Right? You want to do great work. I don't think you did. Look, you know, we've done these, we do these things in our lives because we really have a passion for them. And somewhere, somewhere along the line, somehow, the people who looked after us instilled in us that you should go for it. Yeah. Don't be afraid. No. And I love that. And I'm grateful forever for that. But it's never been about like, how does that reflect who I am in the eyes of others? You know what I mean? In terms of fame or whatever that is, it's just been like, how good is the work right now? So good. Excellent. Let's keep going. You know? But it takes a lot of guts to leave a small country like New Zealand and to go out and just to give it a go. What was it that you were looking for? I was looking, I wanted to be in the most exciting room. I still do. And that's very much the same reason why I came to Los Angeles with my family. I wanted to be in the streaming room. I wanted to be in the room with Jimmy Iovine, you know? Yeah. I'd been in some amazing rooms throughout my life and, I, and that's where I learn and I listen and I just adapt and try and add value. And I've learned so much in the last three years of working in streaming and, and I learned so much working at the BBC. I mean, what a glorious time to, to, to be in radio at a time when radio was just like so on fire at the BBC. It was incredible. Radio One, just incredible, incredible times. Yeah, Radio One, I want to talk about that, but I'm interested in how you, because you were at MTV for how long? I was in MTV for a long time. I mean, I want to say, I mean, I probably started officially in 98 and I, so about 10 years. So that's a, I mean, yeah. Majority of it at MTV too. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, two or three years, I think doing brand new in a time when it was all pop. And so we were making this show that sort of revolved around new music yeah. and then that kind of got swallowed up. Pop just kind of swallowed everything. And then it became sort of TRL and reality TV and all that. And MTV started to change. So they created this other lane, MTV2, amongst other lanes. And they were like, you can go over there. It's where you'll be happy. And, and MTV2 gave you a little more license to... Oh, dude, to- it was like four of us, man. We ran the town. I mean, it was really? crazy. I mean, it was you like... basically had your own network to dude, like... It was the best because really? I got... There was three or four of us. I remember the transition walk. I remember them saying, okay, so we're going to take this show off the air and you've got to go MTV2. Do you agree? I'm like, I agree. You know, fine. I didn't know what I was walking into. I was thinking, is this the end of my career? I didn't know what it was. And I walked literally about 10 meters, not even five meters down the hallway. That was the transition to another group of desks with those three or four desks. And there's a bunch of guys I knew kind of pretty well, but not that well, not well enough to kind of know how we were going to work together. And I said, so I guess I'm yours now. And they're kind of giving me to you. And they were like, all right. <laughs> and they were like, just slow clapping, like, this is going to be the best. And within three minutes, we'd come up with a format, named the show Gonzo. Great and name. So, and we did it. It was done within three to four minutes. And I remember going home and my wife going, how do you feel about it? I was like, you know, I was feeling pretty bad about it, but I had the best five minute meeting I've ever had in my life. And it was the best eight years from that point forward. So we you just, were given complete autonomy, like just go do it. Go into that room. See that room over there? It's like a yeah. storeroom. Nothing's in it. Go make that a studio. Great. What wow, do we put in it? I don't know. Let's go put a green screen down on a brown couch. And then everyone's like, oh my God, it's the brown couch show. And then what do we talk to artists about? I don't know, cheese. Oh my God, you're the guy that talks about cheese. These are all <laughs> things that we just did. And then that over eight, if you see, if you stick at something long enough, it becomes cult, right? It becomes a thing. And it just became a thing. And then artists would watch it. And then artists formed bands. They wanted to come in. And then they wanted to come in. And so they then heard you got the RT monkeys going, dude, we've kind of formed the band watching Gonzo. And you're like, this is great. <laughs> and then you sort of get to a point where you're like, what's next? Uh. Can't keep talking about cheese. But it was amazing. And, you know, it got a little compromised towards the end because, because the music started to shift. And what we were playing, which no one cared about at the beginning, became popular. And so the mid-2000s, it was like, oh, my God, we were getting everybody. I remember, you know, Sir Paul McCartney came on the show like three times. Like Paul McCartney sitting on the brown couch, you know, talking about cheese. It was fucking epic. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. They couldn't get him Paul McCartney down the road. They couldn't get him down MTV, right? They wouldn't know what to do with him because it, it was like all about like, you know, some other TV show or whatever, you know. Big move, MTV, then BBC One. Yeah. How long would, was did the BBC get? Well, nearly up? 13 years on Radio One doing that show. And yeah, dude, you turned years. that thing into 
a, a global f- phenomenon. I was given license, man. I was given license from the people who paid for the license fee, and I was given license from the people who managed it to do what I wanted to do. I mean, that was the show that people wanted to get on because they knew they get on that show. It's just a pure byproduct of creative freedom. Yeah. To be able to be creative with You've creativity. You've been very lucky in that regard. Yeah, totally. And I think to some degree that's because, you know, pick a corner of the room and it doesn't matter if it's the most popular corner or not, just pick a corner in the room and understand it, love it, appreciate it, dedicate yourself to it and uh, wait for people to come to it. Yeah, and they have. You know, and that's it. And and it, it may not be the corner every time, but it will it will have its time. And, you, you know, that's the truth for anything. I mean, how many great stories, great artists, great musicians, great films, great moments that happened decades ago that people discover and say, oh, my God, the undiscovered gem. Genius, yeah. So London to Los Angeles, mm. big move, big mm. change, cultural change. You're married, you've got kids, yeah. you decide to move. Yeah. So what do you um, think? I love it. I mean, and I love it, like I said, I love what it represents for me as a family man now, married nearly nine, you know, 19 years this year, kids 12 and 9 nearly 10. I like the fact that it's making me work. Um, I worked hard when I was in Britain. I would tour a lot. I would be in the studio a lot and I would be on radio a lot. Those are all fun pursuits. So the work I was doing was a lot of kind of physical work, traveling, running around, not like digging, you know, not like doing, building houses, not the amazing race, (laughs) but, but still moving a lot, moving a lot. Right. Yeah. But the mental, that real kind of like cerebral thing that you remember from school. Yeah. Hadn't been awoken in a long time. And that's been really woken up out here. You, know? you said that radio needed to adapt, you know, a while ago. Yeah. Um, what did you mean by that? I don't know if I agree with that statement anymore. And I think I was probably searching for meaning when I said it. I think I was trying to work out, I think what I was probably saying was I need to adapt. Okay. Remember, Phil, like for, for a long time, not to get too down, deep down the rabbit hole, but for a long time when I was playing records on radio, I would have a four to six week window called pre-promotion time. And me and a few other lucky people were the ones who had the access to the records. The records went out because we were driving promotion and excitement to that point when they were released in the hope that they had a big first week and were launched properly. And we did a good job of doing that. But we were the, we were the place where you'd hear the music. So I mean, how do you lose? Yeah. If you've got the access to the records and you've got a platform to play it, like people have got to come listen to you. You'd have to be really try really hard to fuck that up. So you know, we had this amazing era of making the most of that. We never took it for granted. But now it's got to be out. It's got to be out. If you tell someone about it and they can't hear it or watch it, well, they're going to go somewhere else, right? Yeah. You're going to go somewhere else, especially if you're a kid. You just don't even understand the mentality of waiting like that. So that changes the way that you consider, change the way I had to consider my role in the conversation between the artist and the fan, which has always been the only conversation that mattered. We could control it for a long time, not just media, but the labels, the record stores, PR promotions, all these little things could be involved in that. And that's kind of all gone to some degree. You can have direct access to each other now if you want it. So if we're going to get in the middle of that, we better be adding some value to that. We better be creating context and romance and creativity around that idea and collaboratively because otherwise we're out of a job. But artists gravitate towards you. They open up to you. I just love them. I just want them to win. I want artists to reach as many people as possible. I want them to be able to get their point across. I want them to be able to speak and contextualize their music. I want their music to live. I don't want it to just live and go away. But I have this real need, this real urge to want to share music. Like I yeah. really want people to just feel what I'm feeling. Yeah. I want them to feel what I'm feeling. And I want them to have it in their life for a moment when they need it. And that's who I was when I was 14. You know what I like? I like that you haven't turned into a wanker. <laughs> Thanks. No, but I mean, seriously. No, it's a real genuine I mean, compliment. You... By the way, to anyone else watching who's not from New Zealand, that's about as heartfelt as it gets from down under. <laughs> yeah. That's like, I mean, that's I went almost, deep for that I'm one. almost emotional right now. No, but I'm saying like, beautiful. as much as you've changed, you've stayed the same. And that's really cool. We're lucky, man. And, you know, I, I know I'm grateful. I know you are. 
I'm hugely grateful. You know, and, and I get to wake up in the morning and I get to come to work and on a bad day, I still get to love what I do. Yeah. And on a good day, I get to feel like, wow, I'm learning something remarkable here. And um, what I try to do now is I try to, uh, I just encourage that in my kids, you know, to my friends Be who are having thankful. tough times. Yeah. And, and I listen to my friends when I'm down and they remind me of that and they're like, bro, you know, come on, this is the journey. This is what you're on. And, and you know, I, I feel like... And it, dude, by the way, gratitude can come across mega smug, and I'm aware of that. But I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't hide it, and I'm not embarrassed by the fact that I feel very, um, I feel very, you know, thankful that I'm in a situation where, um, you know, I, I get to, you know, spend time with my family and do what I love to do. You yeah, know? you really still have that hunger, like you said, like when you were 14 years old, and yeah, and that comes through, and that will continue to come through. So. Good on you, man. I mean, seriously, it's it's, it's just... been a lovely moment for me to speak. I mean, as soon as I found out that we were going to get a chance to talk, I was so thrilled because a you've had such a, you know, you have had a massive impact on my life. That phone call did was a huge moment. I remember it very, very vividly. And sorry, I screamed at you. No, I get it now. I mean, I wondered for a long time. To some degree, you've been able to kind of like you know, give me some closure on that. I was like, why is he so angry at me? He seems to be saying such I nice really, things. I really wasn't so angry. But listen, you know, I got a letter from uh, from a kid who's in New Zealand, and he. Um, is interested in coming overseas, just mm. you know, going overseas, just like you and I did. And I wanted to, and his his interest is in music. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to read it to you because I thought maybe you could give him some advice. He says he's traveling to America in June, and he says that given like yourself, I am involved in television. Uh, it was suggested through a mutual contact that I reach out to you. Hopefully, this letter will serve as a good introduction to myself and my skills. To further qualify the letter, I've included copies of my resume and a showreel. Let's hope that the showreel is not 22 minutes long. Like Sounds very familiar. What a familiar story. Yeah. Well, I mean, you must get these. You must get a lot of letters from a lot of people. Right? I, I don't get that many, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't get that many letters from people. Says, basically, Phil, I've devoted the last three and a half years of my life to music television. So he's in music television in New Zealand. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Sounds awfully familiar, Phil. Really? <laughs> By now, you are fucking kidding me. All right. So I, I mean, have, I don't keep emails from a year ago. Like, I'm right, talking so I have, about. I have a gift for you. This okay? is crazy. This. This is. You, <laughs> this you Dude, sent it's to. So long. This you hold on. You're not. It's not. It's. I'm gonna leave it with you. Yeah. This is what you sent to me. Yeah. In 1997, it's basically a book with chapters. <laughs> I. Uh, <laughs> I. Uh, <laughs> It's so long. I don't it's keep true. a lot of what people send me. Yeah. But for whatever reason, when yeah. Zane Lowe wrote to me in 1997 <laughs> and told me that he wanted to get in the music industry and I got this novel, <laughs> I thought there's a reason More I need manifesto, to- manifesto, I would think. I, really? I felt the need- Look at the shot of you. <sighs> I felt the need- Good times. To-, to <laughs> I mean- Good looking guys. Yeah, you know, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like I've got a lot of baby, a lot of baby oil, baby oil on that shot. But I just <laughs> want to read a couple of things to you that you sent to me. Okay, right, Zane right. Lowe. I won't give away your address. Date of birth: nineteen seventy. I don't live there anymore, Phil. It's probably okay, but by all means, carry on. Health reported excellent. <laughs> uh, driver's license current unrestricted and international. Um, Do you know? Career... I went to London and then got a learner license for my entire time <laughs> there. Really? That's the truth. Then it, you list all your skills, and it, and I love this one down the bottom. Uh, music television, you say you're a director, writer, researcher, presenter, interviewer, oh, music, lofty. musician, writer, producer, programmer, oh. radio, TV, professional Flesh voice talent, out, son. research, 
survey research and broadcasting, and this is the best. Go ahead. Computer. <laughs> Macintosh, Microsoft Word, basic internet skills. <laughs> Welcome to Apple. Welcome to, see? You see, were destined for Apple. See the kind of path you put yourself on life when you manifest destiny like that? What the So fuck? I am returning this to you. I have about 55 of them in a box about... in my mom's garage. <laughs> That's so sweet. So, Dude, I want you it's to very have sweet. You know what? Can I be honest with you, though? I love that you have this. Can I re-gift it? Oh, you're going to keep Let me keep it? Can you keep it? I think my wife wants me to keep it, actually. Dude. I can't thank you enough for the time today. It's been such a joy oh, hanging out and I'm hanging thanking with you. you. Zane, I got three questions for you. Hit it. Last time you cried. This morning? From laughing so much. Oh, from laughing so much? <laughs> probably should have waited for the end of that question. Yes, probably. I it, right? <laughs> I get myself <laughs> but, in trouble But hold on that. a second. Do we need to talk about you crying this morning? It was, it was like Jose Gonzalez, Cycling Trivialities. I was on, you know, La Cienega. My kid, my kid chose one of my favorite songs of all time in a song battle. It was a moment for me. Um... Uh, then he asked me, why are you crying? <laughs> so I had to explain to him about the combination of chemistry and, and moments. Um, so last time I, I cried from laughing so much would have been, we had some friends around about six weeks ago and we had a, we have a nice outdoor fire and we sat around and um, had too much wine and I don't know, man, it just, it's, someone just hit a roll. Somebody said Someone something. hit a roll, yeah. Hit a roll. Uh, if you had 24 hours to live, you were going to take your last breath tomorrow, what would you do with your last day on earth? Oh my God. Um, well, I would just wrap my family up and probably either just keep it simple and order whatever I want. And so I, like, I love my house. And so I just find the nicest environment and just spend time with my family and watch TV and just go out in arms, which I think is nice. Or I'd get in the car with them and drive PCH as long as, as far as I could go. Which brings up the next question of you're driving across America. You can yeah. take three people in the car. Oh, you already know. Gang, gang, man. Take my team. Yeah? Take my wife and my kids all the time. I mean, we would fight incessantly. It'd be like Amazing Race. It'd be like Amazing Race, yeah. but I mean- Family edition. Yeah, I mean, you might even think, of, oh, this is a little bit too intense. These guys are like crazy. Uh, it would be great. We'd love it. Um, go on, Amazing Race, by the way, if you were asking. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, I'd take my team, man, every, all the time. In fact, we're trying to work out what we want to do this summer, and I think the idea is to do a little roadie. So we, we might try it out this, this summer. Zane, I'm going to try to reach across oh, here and shake your it. hand. So much easier than it was 25 years ago whenever it was I tried to reach out to you from New Zealand. Yeah. My man. All right. Thank you so much. If you have a really cool story that you want to share with us, then why not share it? Maybe you'll become my next guest. Don't forget, you can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. <laughs>